You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Dave Merwin, who is using Django and Python to create a service that helps organizations remain safe by following standards compliant rules. Dave, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting us know a little bit more about the app you've developed? Uh, sure. My name is Dave Merwin. Uh, I'm the one of the principals of a small software company in uh, Eugene, Oregon. I grew up on the East Coast. I actually am an accidental developer. I uh, started in art school um, back in the days when Macromedia Director was still around. And uh, I went to school for painting and then started playing with some of the scripting tools inside of Director and started falling in love with programming. So after I left school, uh, I spent most of my time uh, in the healthcare space. And the app that we're talking about today is an application that's um, part of a suite of products that helps um, clinics provide services for firefighters and mostly around maintaining and tracking data as it relates to uh, exposure hazards like uh, bloodborne pathogens, that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is super interesting. Like if you're a business owner, the last thing you're thinking about is like, like what happens if, you know, one of my workers pukes on a fire department guy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And can, in addition, if you, if you say you own a restaurant or something like that, and one of your servers gets thrown up on by, um, you know, someone who's had too much to drink or someone slips and, and or someone gets spit on or any number of different really gross scenarios, um, the we try to track that data for folks so that they can uh, report it know that they're getting treated as they should, um, what the appropriate next steps are, and what the uh, legal responsibilities are. Very cool. So in terms of this application, are you the sole developer on it, or are you working on it with a small team? So I typically am the sole developer. Uh, for this app, I had uh, the privilege of working with uh, Jeff Triplett uh, way back in the day. This is probably five years ago at this point, four years ago, to help me sort through through some of the sticky uh, pieces that I was having a hard time with, but um, now most of my development is uh, by myself, unless I'm working on a you know a much more um, ambitious project. Right. So, how long has this app been up and running for? Uh, it's been. I think it's uh, hitting its fourth year. Um, it's been. Uh, it's actually gone through a couple different server migrations as we've learned and as new technology has become available. Um, but it's now. Uh, uh, running on a DigitalOcean setup. Nice. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into that aspect of the show where we talk all about cloud hosting providers and all that other stuff. But for now, maybe just to like tie things back to what someone can like hang on to in terms of like traffic flow. Like, uh, I, and you don't need to answer this if you're, you know, if it's too sensitive or whatever. But like, like how many clients do you have? If this is like a SaaS app, like, you know, what type of traffic do you deal with on the day to day? So we actually have very, very low traffic. Um, which is w one of the reasons uh, I love Django. Well, actually, Django clearly can handle <laughs> lots of traffic. But this whole process for me was about being able to serve initially just one client. And so there's um, additional clinics as the program has sort of grown. So our model is we serve businesses that are serving other businesses, right? So we serve a clinic with this product, and then that clinic serves 
uh, thousands of different users. So it's more about uh, enabling that clinic to do their job as they serve, I think they're up to 4,000 different um, individual uh, data profiles plus um, <clears throat> additional services for other um, municipalities and departments. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So it's like you're building, I don't know, like the platform for other people to, you know, have their own customers and all that other stuff linked into it. Correct. Yeah, it's truly a business to business. Uh, right now, it's truly a business to business setup. Right. So you're like you're managing your clients' clients essentially. Correct. And when we're providing changes, and you know, when we're working on the application, we have a very small set of people who are giving us feedback. And the what's unique about this, as far as in can you know, in comparison to some of the other products that I've worked on. Um, when we have a much smaller user set, um, we can actually go a lot deeper and don't have to worry quite so much about, you know, um, triaging requests because, I mean, you only have a couple clients. So <laughs> as long as you're not breaking it for someone else, then you can do actually quite a bit of custom work. Right. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. It also probably gives you a pretty powerful bond with, uh, you know, the one client that you have. Like they feel like they're very involved with the process of like developing features and things like that. Is that correct? Yes. And we've tried to use that uh, same process as we develop other products as well. Um, trying to get, um, I mean, the only word I really know how to use for it is uh, intimately involved in the in the client's life as we learn more about what they're doing, how they do it, what they need, and, and that kind of stuff. So developing this product and being so involved with this specific uh, clinic made it sort of a, a place to test the ideas of, how can we do better product development in all our products by more intimately engaging with the actual user? Right. So maybe going back to this app a bit here, you mentioned, you know, you enjoy using Django and Python. Uh, what motivated you to use that for this project? And also, do you use that for all the other projects that you have? Yeah. So uh, for the first part of the question, I, I use Django because I love Django. And um, I gave a talk, uh, this is like five years ago now, and I, I would not have the life that I have if it weren't for Django. <laughs> like the community has uh, been so supportive and they've been so helpful when I've got stuck. Like I don't have a computer science background. I, you know, was trained as an artist. I don't, some of the underlying principles that other people might get, you know, right out of the bat, I, I don't understand. And so the Django community I found to be the most supportive and encouraging um, and I, I haven't found another community like that until I started using Vue. So I stuck with um, Django for the longest time. And even to the point where a lot of folks were switching on their front ends, I stayed with Django and just a you know, request response cycle because I could get a predictable result. And I knew that um, if I got stuck, I could get help. I mean, I, I would literally ask questions of the community at two o'clock in the morning and get answers within 20 minutes. I mean, it was unbelievable. So for me, it's really about the support that that community offers and um, the folks that are involved in it. Right. Yeah, that, that's an amazing story because it's like, I don't really have that much Django experience. You know, I've, I've gone through like the voting tutorial, but it's not really the stack that I use. But yeah, when I posted like a request for podcast episodes into the R Django on Reddit, it was like the biggest response I've received yet. Like it was so embracing, even though like you know, I'm not on that subreddit posting all the time. So I'm a newcomer over here. And yeah, everyone was like super welcoming and very active. Yeah, it was awesome. It was fun. Uh, just a little antidote. I, so I, I uh, worked with a company called RevSys, um, 
recently uh, last year for a different project. And in the beginning, we were talking about um, standards of contact uh, or conduct right inside of our just, you know, there were five of us and I was the, the, the contractor. I was hiring them to help me. And they were like, OK, but when we do this, here's the standards of conduct. And, you know, it's easy as like an entrepreneur, as a solo developer to kind of forget about that stuff. But I appreciated so much um, their willingness to kind of be a little bit bold and share like, hey, this is how we conduct ourselves and this is how we want to conduct ourselves, even though you've hired us and you're paying the bill. I thought that was freaking amazing. And then um, they working with that team actually has changed my vocabulary um, to be more gender, gender neutral. Um, you know, I'm a little bit older than maybe most of the people in your audience. So I say guys a lot. And it turns out that that's kind of offensive to female developers. And I have daughters. So, and I love the opportunity to like bring them into the nerd culture. And so I've changed. And now I say y'all all the time instead of guys. It's <laughs> so just a little, little but all of that I've learned from that community, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. My go-to move for, instead of saying guys, cause I do that all the time as well is, is folks, but I still, it f- feels weird to say that word, but that is like semi okay to say. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. So going back to your app here, uh, would you classify this app as like a monolithic app or do you have it broken up into a couple microservices or are you somewhere in between using Django apps? How, how is it set up? I would say it's a monolithic app um, migrating towards microservices. So what I've been working on for the last probably year and a half is how do I break these into um, discrete parts uh, that are easier to maintain and easier to iterate on. When when I first started, it all made sense to keep it as one big thing. And part of the issue too in the beginning was needing to be concerned with HIPAA uh, compliance. So I needed to make sure the experience was all in one place, that I could protect it all, keep the data all separate. And you know, circumstances have changed over the last couple of years. So being able to break it apart, I, I don't know that I'll ever build another monolithic product again. Like this is sort of the last of that. And even that will be evolved. Um, it's being evolved even now. Like I'm, I'm working on breaking it apart. Right. So in this monolithic app, have you broken it up into uh, a couple of Django apps or no? Um, well, okay. So let me, uh, let me go back. So I would define monolithic as a little bit different. So, um, for, for me, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's actually, uh, I don't even know how many apps now. It's probably a dozen individual apps in, in the actual, um, in the service itself. Um, when, I, when I talk about breaking something apart into services, like authentication would be its own server install and um, whatever, like all these different component pieces would actually be their own server installs and it's all connected via APIs instead of uh, one app that sits underneath one domain with one um, uh, HTTP uh, request and response engine, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have this one, probably one Git repo, one app, but then right now, current day, you have X amount of Django apps sitting inside of that, right? Correct, yeah, yeah. So do you maybe want to just rattle off a couple of those app names so we can kind of get like sort of the scope of your app? Yeah, sure. So I have, um, let's see, uh, 14. So I have 14 different apps um, in this one service right now. Um, working backwards, I've got a utilities app that um, manages all kinds of different stuff like verifications and um, some core models and that kind of stuff. 
I've got a Teams app that manages the organization itself, like who can have access to data and who can't. Um, I've got a meta app that controls uh, sort of the things you would do filters against, right? So you have a, an app that you can go in and add and remove um, different kinds of data objects to it so that you can run different kinds of queries against the objects that have foreign keys back to that, that meta tool. Um, I've got a products app that manages the different level of uh, subscriptions. I've got a notes app, a logs app. Um, the kind of the heart of it is this thing called exposure cases. And that's where I do the exposure case management, which manages all the medical data for um, the patient as well as the source patient. So the person who had the, um, uh, the fluid that the patient was exposed to. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but there's a lot in there. Oh yeah, totally. And then I guess you have like, like an auth app or something like that or no? Yeah. So I have an auth app. I have, um, uh, in this instance, we call it profiles and it's broken into accounts and profiles and profiles are one set of data and accounts are, uh, uh, users that can authenticate into the system, that kind of stuff. Right. Very cool. Yeah. So like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of new to the Django community, but I love, I love the idea of the app separation. Like even if you're not ready to go into the microservices route, it's like this forces you, if you want to use it to kind of think about your domain, you know, it's like the intermediary step of what you might break out services into later. Is that how it's uh, been for you? Yeah, exactly. Um, you could conceivably take each one of these and break them out into their own server instance if you wanted to. Being able to push and pull, I mean, I don't know. It depends on the size of what you're trying to do in the audience and how scalable you want things. The, the, the way I think about things that started sort of with the development of this app was, gosh, now, like, why would you write the same authentication system 16 times, right, over the course of your career? Like, why wouldn't you just work on perfecting the one authentication app and have that authentication app be used for all your apps going forward? And so as you learn new things, you can apply it to that, that authentication, like um, worrying on, you know, working on field encryption, like, gosh, being able to uh, deal with, uh, you know, PII as a, as a, as a uh, protected data field why would you want to build that once and then and then have to repeat it for the 15 instances of that auth that you have installed? So that's really changed the way I think about things. And it's enabled me to build and go faster with additional products uh, since the launch of, of this product. Yeah, that's very cool and totally makes sense. Now, going back to what you said before, did you say that you are using server render templates with like sprinkles of JavaScript or do you have this as like an API backend with view on the front end? Uh, great question. So uh, both and. So when we first started the app, it was completely sort of old school, right? Uh, re request response, the templates drove everything and then had uh, jQuery to do any interactions. And then I, um, I, I, and for a different project, I had built something with Angular and started falling in love with the idea and the user experience that that enabled. I, I will say emphatically that you do not need a JavaScript front end for your app, that it has to be based on a user experience driven decision. But what I learned in Angular was that I could provide a better user experience. So um, then Vue came along and it blew my mind because it was so easy to work with. So then for data wellness, what I've done is I've um, some of it is API driven with a sprinkling of Vue on the front end as it seemed appropriate. So places where we're dealing with, you know, add and repeat. So like 
I've added a I've added a profile. I need to add another one, and so save and repeat or bulk ads, right? I want to fill in one form field and add it to multiple places, or I want to fill in um, quickly create multiple profiles and add them to a specific agency, and then uh, search. So I've used a lot of um, uh, view and API calls uh, for search, but then the rest of it right now uh, is still just normal uh, request response. Okay. So maybe can you paint a picture of like what it is like to use this application? Is it mostly viewing like paginated tabular data that you can filter and search on, or are there some like interesting graphics and charts or whatever or no? Um, it's not, it's less about interesting and more about data accuracy. So, so the typical use case for this app is uh, a clinician is on, is quote unquote on call and the clinician gets a call from an anxious firefighter or police officer or city parks worker who uh, got pricked by a needle uh, that they found. And it could have been at a crime scene, it could have been at a you know MVA accident, or it could have been just like the poor park worker, he's just trying to clean up and he finds a, a needle and he gets stuck by it. So in that instance, those uh, individuals call the clinic and, the, and, and it starts uh, a sequence of events that need to... Um, uh, happen in order for everyone to be in compliance with the law. And I'm not uh, super versed in that part of it, but for my part of it, for the application, all of the data needs to be logged and the event needs to be tracked. Um, every action that happens in uh, the the tool needs to also be logged in a secondary log so that you can tell who's accessing what, when, what action was taken. And so I built a log engine that actually automates all of that. And then the user essentially creates a case. Uh, so the clinician will log in and create an exposure case. And then part of the exposure case is you have patients and you have source patients. So in that, in the instance I described, you wouldn't have a source patient. You don't know who it was. But in like a car accident or something like that, the person who was bleeding or the person who threw up or whatever, that person is the source patient and that person exposes uh, others to their... Um, bloodborne pathogens. So the source patient also has to be tracked. And a lot of that is also dependent on local law. But um, the idea here is if you can, if you can track the source patient and you can, you can help anyone else who might've been exposed to that source patient. Um, you know, like I, I, this is so gross and I apologize, but you know, when someone, um, when someone's in a car accident and it's a bad accident, there's the potential for biohazard to be everywhere. So it's not abnormal to have more than one person exposed to the same source patient. And each one of those people may or may not have had specific vaccinations or tests or procedures done in the past. So what we're doing with our system is making the data available from their past treatments and then can help the clinician make recommendations for what the next course of action is. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And it's also like almost eye-opening to think about like that as an actual business, right? It's like I would never think things like that are even a process. Like if I'm walking down the street and someone gets in a car accident very close to me and like whatever, like, you know, like their pancreas goes like flying and hits me in the eye. It's like I need to know am I at risk of some weird disease from that? Yeah. So and if you think about it in the firefighters, I mean, I absolutely love, 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 love working with the fire service because these folks are every single day that they have when they're on duty is our worst day. So they're every day 
is the worst day that we can possibly have, right? So like your house burns down, you get in a car accident, you're really sick and someone calls an ambulance. It's typically the fire department that shows up to pick you up. You are completely freaked out and they're like, this is my every day. And then like in a, the course of a motor vehicle accident, they get you get hurt in the accident and your blood is everywhere and they go in to try to cut your uh, seatbelt out to get you out and they scratch their arm um, and this happens. Like they'll scratch their arm and are exposed to your blood. They don't know if you have hepatitis, if you have any number of different bloodborne pathogens, right? So they have to track it in order that they stay healthy because then they go home. And if you think about someone with a partner, how do they how do they hang out with their with their partner after that? Like they they need to know with confidence that they're healthy. And the whole point of data wellness is to help them track that data and make that possible. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe now we can talk maybe a little bit about like the rest of your tech stack because it sounds like you're dealing with a pretty decent amount of data here, right? Like what database do you use? Do you use Celery and Redis? Are you using Docker in development or production? Yeah, so, uh, wow. Um, okay, so I do not use Docker um, and I might be one of the last holdouts and I can feel that that's probably not a good idea. But for me, especially since I'm a small shop, um, for me, I try to remove as much complexity as possible. And so I really try to point to, and I think part of being a nerd, an art nerd, is that I don't know a lot of the things that are possible, but I do know what works really well. And so I have fought with Docker files over and over and over again. I've worked on a product, you know, we were founders in a product um, over the last year or two, which was a remote ordering product, and it was all built around you know, Docker uh, or around Docker. So, or it was built in Docker, sorry. I, so I don't use Docker in my own stuff. Um, the stack that I use now, um, I use Postgres for the database, Django for um, sort of the server backend and uh, Django REST framework for um, the uh, API. And then on the front end, uh, now I use Vue and Nuxt. So, uh, and I love both of those. So, um, and I could go into more detail on all of it. Um, I just started playing with Tailwind CSS and I've converted, <laughs> I've converted all of my products except data wellness to Tailwind because it's such a great, uh, CSS framework. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I've recently started to use Tailwind too, probably, I don't know, six, eight months ago is when I really started looking into it and really, really enjoying it. Uh, that is for sure. So I I wrote my own CSS framework years ago. Um, I, you know, I had my own setup and my own tools. I've used all of the popular ones. Um, I a developer friend of mine told me he's like, "You will hate Tailwind for the first two weeks. You will absolutely hate it, but then you won't be able to put it down." And he was totally right. Like I have, I absolutely could not stand it at first. I was like, "This is so dumb. Why would you be so verbose about all of this stuff?" Um, but now, now that I'm using it um, on a daily basis, I absolutely love it, and I I'm trying to you know convert other people to it as much as possible. Yeah, like I definitely you know I didn't start this podcast to have a hidden agenda to convert people to Tailwind, but yeah, it's an awesome awesome uh, CSS framework. It's pretty cool. Like one of my biggest gripes with it was, or one of my like misconceptions, I guess you can say, is like, well, you know, you can always cache your CSS file at a CDN. And you know, save a lot of bandwidth there. Just having one or two class names in your HTML. But if you have Tailwind CSS, you might end up having like 15 classes in your HTML, 
And you're not going to be caching that at the CDN layer, layer, right? Like your Django backend is going to serve that HTML response with all of those uh, class names like inlined in the HTML. So I thought like, oh, I'm just trading these problems now. It's like now, like, okay, maybe with like, you know, good minification and stripping down, I can have a very small tail end CSS file, but my HTML is going to be bloated with like an extra like 30 kilobytes of a response for every request. But then uh, Adam, the creator of Tailwind, I always forget his last name, Wathan or something, he actually tweeted back and he's like, you know, go check out this article about how gzipping works. And like the gzip algorithm is so good that like, you know, if, if you're repeating those 15 classes 20 times in your HTML, you know, gzip is going to like do its magic to convert all of that text into like like eight characters or something that gets sent over the wire. So, yeah. it's And also, don't forget, you can use apply. So you can actually, if you do want to go back to the idea of class names, individual class names, you could create those class names and use the uh, uh, the the apply attribute so that you can pull in the other stuff from Tailwind and, and truly create classes. Yeah, it's very cool. It's like, I forget one of the quotes from him or like the creator of Laravel or like Taylor or whatever, like they're both kind of in the same circle. It's like, you got to really fight for those abstractions, right? It's like, you got to fight to make that class instead of the other way around where it's like classes everywhere. Very cool. So going back to your tech stack, you know, you mentioned you're not using Docker. Totally fine, like I understand, right? It's not like everybody needs to use it. But do you find like yourself maybe, I don't know, getting stuck a little bit going from development to production without it? Like, do you, well, I mean, you have a lot of experience, but like when it comes to setting things up on multiple machines, do you find yourself having to like run, you know, multiple steps that are different for each operating system? No, um, I've been doing this long enough now that I use the exact same setup for every app. <laughs> and I, I I feel like I'm in a little bit of a unique position because uh, a lot of the problems that I had to deal with in the creation of data wellness uh, worked towards correcting some behaviors early on um, as I've developed new products since. Um, you know, in the past, but uh, I worked with other teams who would deal with that those kinds of issues for me. So I have a script now that I run through. Uh, it's not, I mean, it's, it's not a script in that it's a server script. It's a script of like, do these things um, that I just do over and over again uh, with predictable results. And the thing I like about that is it's less mystery and more, I'm more intimately knowing what's going on. Um, and I don't, there's not a lot of like, you know, weird stuff in the background that I can't predict. Right. So you mentioned uh, using Postgres and search is pretty important for this application. Do you do like any type of uh, full text search with Postgres and Django or no? So, yeah. And you'd also asked about um, Redis and Celery. So I, I'm actually working on uh, a product now, uh, which will be my first really big Celery and Redis setup um, with, with uh, Postgres full text. So for the, for data wellness, there's honestly not really the need for all of that. Like you're, when you're searching, you're searching for something so discriminate that it's not, um, it's not really required. It might be required later. And so that's one of the great things about Postgres is that it's already got full text built in. So I can use that stuff going forward, but I don't use it much right now. Most of it right now is just how do I make the queries as efficient as possible? Um, Cause the data sets is, honestly is not big enough to warrant it. Right. So have you found yourself kind of like digging a little bit deeper at Postgres, like really trying to get your indexes correct and avoiding N plus one queries and things like that? Yeah, honestly, I have not had to deal with that hardly at all. <laughs> um, nice. 
And Good problem not to have. Yeah, exactly. And one of the great things about um, the Django community is there's always people who can point me in the right direction if I get stuck. The things, one of the things I'm working on now, I know I'm going to have to deal with that because we're dealing with the initial install for this database will be 2.9 million records. And so I, I, I'm already dealing with like, okay, how am I going to have to, how am I going to make this efficient run, you know, background processes, notifications and all that stuff. So I actually just started diving into that at a, thinking about that for a product for next, from uh, last week. Nice. So this application though, do you not do things like send emails out from time to time or now i do but the again this the the set is so small i mean it runs on a small um digitalocean setup so it's just it's enough memory in the digitalocean setup to keep it running efficient um and i you know tr track metrics and response times and all that stuff but um it's just man it's just not a heavy load right so you mentioned DigitalOcean here. Do you maybe want to get into like which plan you signed up for? Like what are the specs of the server? So I'm actually a DigitalOcean, uh, whatever their new partner program thingamabobber is. Um, so I have a ton of like, I don't know how many, I have over 40 or 50 individual instances. I typically start with the smallest one and grow it from there. Um, and they're all different doing the, you know, like the consulting side of things or the experiments or playing with things or whatever. But, uh, for this one in particular, uh, I just have a lower level instance set up. Um, you know, it, it's easy to be like, Oh, I, you know, I'm not spending thousands and thousands of dollars on server instances through the week, which is totally fine. Um, I just would encourage people not to get like caught up in the idea of having to have the biggest install in order for performance. Like I would suggest start small and scale it up from there, um, which is what we do with data wellness. And we make changes probably every six months based on what we see happening and, you know, how is the, how is the whole thing performing, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite things about DigitalOcean, like I'm a huge fan of them as well, is like, yeah, when you get to that point where you need to upgrade the box, it's like, well, turn the box off, click a couple buttons, turn the box on, and you have the new specs. Like it's so easy to upgrade without worrying about data loss and all, all other stuff like that. Yeah, their images system is rad. Like being able to, like I, it's taken me, the first time I did this was from a different uh, uh, vendor, which will remain nameless. And it took days to convert things over. It was so much work. Um, but now running it on, um, Data wellness is super easy to migrate things and move things around. Yeah. So are you actually running everything on one server then, including the Postgres database? Correct. Nice. So what distro did you go with? Uh, Ubuntu uh, 18. It's my go-to. I started looking at 19 the other day, but I typically just go with Ubuntu 19. Or 18, sorry. Right. Yeah, I always try to stick to the latest LTS. Although 2004 just came out about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, something like that. Oh, really? Yep. But for me, I don't know if this is the same for you, but I like to usually wait for at least one or two patch releases before I upgrade to it because, you know, brand new thing. I don't want to be patient zero. Yeah, no, no, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> right. Especially if you want uh, to make money off of what you're doing. It's a terrible idea. Yeah, for sure. Now, you mentioned, you know, all of this is sitting on one server. Did you look at using DigitalOcean's like managed databases or no? I did. Um... Again, 
my data set right now is still really small. I will probably uh, next week for a different project roll out a managed database on Postgres for um, DigitalOcean. Again, because uh, as I migrate towards um, having everything be its own unique instance, um, some of the data stuff I want, I actually don't want it risking anything else. Um, so the, you know, the thing that I have right now is super easy to, you know, data wellness is super easy to replicate uh, from backup, but the complexity of the things I'm working on now, if something goes down, I want it to be discrete, right? I don't want it to, I don't want it to affect everything else. So. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned here too, all on one server, are you using GUnicorn for your Django app server? Do you have, do you have Nginx sitting in front of that? Geonicorn, yep, yep, Nginx sitting in front of it. In fact, I, I posted, uh, if you want, I don't know if you want to keep this in or not, but uh, a long time ago I posted on a gist, like the actual setup. So it's uh, on a GitHub gist. So if people are looking to do all that with um, Geonicorn and, uh, and Nginx, I show all the settings that are available for doing it. So. Oh yeah, awesome. Yeah, I'll keep this in. I'll, I'll for sure drop a link to that in the show notes. Okay. So then do you have Nginx set up to use, uh, you know, if you're doing TLS termination there with Let's Encrypt or no? Um, so I use CertBot, um, which is the, uh, what is it, the productized version of Let's Encrypt. Um, CertBot is, are you familiar with CertBot? Yeah, it's like that package you install on your server and it manages stuff for you in terms of SSL certs. Yeah, so it's super easy. Um, it's like five lines and then it runs it and out it goes. The thing that I've done that's been different in the last two years was now I put everything behind Cloudflare. Um, so that that that's changed a little bit of how I have to think about, you know, like, uh, you know, launching new features or whatever. Um, but it, it provides an extra uh, level of security and um, the performance. It's it's awesome. I don't know if your users using Cloudflare, but it's great. Right. I definitely want to get into, you know, a little bit of the gory details about Cloudflare, but... Are you also using Nginx to initially serve your static files before Cloudflare gets a chance to pull them into its CDN? Yes. Cool. Yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to taking a look at your gist because, you know, I haven't seen it before this call, so I, I don't know what else is in there. Anything interesting in your Nginx setup that's worth talking about? Um, no, the only thing, well, maybe. Um, the one thing I do is, so when I first started, I kept getting these, like, uh, Django has a really great, notification for when um i can't even remember the name of it so now i feel silly but um basically if you get an, uh, a bad ip trying to access your setup um the nginx has a way to set up sort of like a, a honeypot server and so you can route uh those calls to nginx to be bounced before they get to django um so it's kind of a cool you know, of course, this is all done with uh, debug off. So you'll get an email notice saying, you know, un, you know, bad access. You should add this to your blacklist or something like that. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I've only really messed with the allow or deny list for the blacklist at the Nginx level. I didn't, I didn't know you can get into specifics about like determining who filled out Honeyfield pots in like a forum somewhere. Uh, well, no, sorry, I, I misspoke. It, it actually creates like a. Um, like a, a honeypot server. So it's not, it's not that it would be for forums. It's for like, like, uh, um, I guess DDoS attacks or something like that. And it's, so it looks at the IP and it says, 
actually, this isn't even a good IP because it's going to something that would not be served. Uh, so we're just going to bounce it out and it doesn't even get to Django. Interesting. And then from the end user, like the bad actor's point of view, is it like they feel like they're shadow banned? They don't even know that things are busted on the back end or, or do they see some type of like error response? No, I think they just get bounced. Okay. Yeah, they don't have any idea. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the little, it's like, if you send me a note to remind me on Monday or Tuesday, I'll send you a little, uh, the, it's super tiny and I'll send you the two pieces so that uh, people can use it if they want. Sure. So now let's maybe talk a little bit about Cloudflare. Like what made you decide to use them even on your smaller scale deploy? Uh, so, okay. So I found them by accident. Um, they were actually told, so two years ago, we started working on this project for a new startup and, uh, I was, I helped found the startup. I built the original prototype, that kind of stuff. But then, um, we made a really smart choice and hired uh, a really, really great developer who kind of took over. And part of what he did was he, um, he introduced some of this kind of the practices that he'd been using and one of which was putting Cloudflare in front of everything. You know, I work with a lot of design agencies and the they always want really high quality um, photography. But of course, from a user experience standpoint, that makes me cringe because you're forcing users to, to slow speeds and all that stuff. And then we use Google um, Lighthouse a lot for um, doing... Um, sort of like certification testing, right? Like, okay, you're done with your site. Everything works. All the tests pass. Let's see how it actually works. And so we'll use that. So what Cloudflare has been um, really helpful with is, um, of course, helping with caching, DNS, um, security, and all that other stuff. But it's actually um, helped boost the performance of our sites um, measurably. I mean, it's it's can be dramatic, like 15 to 30% improvement in performance. Oh, wow. So yeah, it's it's a really big deal. So I use Cloudflare now for everything, including like I just posted a one-page static site the other day, and I put it behind Cloudflare, and the performance enhancement is just insane. Like <laughs> it's so good, and it does provide you with some um, web traffic analysis, like some really simple tools in case you don't want to use Google Analytics. Uh, so there's some there, yeah, it's it's a really 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 powerful suite of tools. Yeah, my problem with Cloudflare, like I love them as a company in terms of like what they allow people to do, right? It's like you just, you know, have them handle your DNS, you sign up and it's like almost hands free to get all that cool stuff for like no developer time at all. But it just scares me at like a conceptual level of that this amount of internet traffic is now going through this one company. It's like we have to put a lot of trust into them. Yeah, so <laughs> totally agree with you. And what I've done is make sure that all of my settings are duplicated on the DigitalOcean server, even though DigitalOcean is going through them, um, so that in case something does go haywire, I could always pull the plug and be up and back up and running. So I keep I keep everything also running on um, DigitalOcean. Right. Yeah, that's a smart move. And yeah, I think um, I do remember trying to log into DO a couple of times, and they have that intermediary. You know, you need to put in. Like, hey, wait five seconds for Cloudflare to prove that you're not a bot. Yeah. I, so I I went on like that for like a week with Shopify for one of the projects I was working on. And they like, they kept insisting like, oh, it's just, the, you know, the, the person I was talking to had no idea what I was saying. But everybody and their mother is now using Cloudflare. So um, it's definitely a valid concern. Like if they go down, does the internet go with them? <laughs> yeah. I think for now, it's like one of those things, right? It's like, 
you can't always hold out for the best tool that's ever going to be created ever because these tools change. Like right now, Cloudflare is really good. Two years from now, probably still going to be really good. 10 years from now, who knows? And we'll worry about that in 10 years. Yeah. So that, I mean, that was my last year with like, you know, um, and within the last couple of years, I switched to Sketch and then from Sketch now then playing with Figma and then Framer X just came out. Like you can't, you cannot absolutely get married to one thing. Um, you have to be able to learn and continue to be flexible and learn about all the different tools and even Django itself as they change and grow and um, you know, ways to think about how to use them. You know, I, I used to do everything only in Django and now I use Django just for the back end. And so, yeah. Yep. So going back to your setup here, you have that DigitalOcean server and you kind of have this checklist of things you execute on the server to get it set up. Uh, have you looked into using any type of like configuration management tools maybe, or automating some of that setup, or are you just so ingrained with executing XXXXX until it's done that you don't really care? Um, so the latter. Uh, honestly, at this point in my life, like if I can reduce the, so I just said I can't get married and I have to be flexible. (laughs) Um, if I can reduce my tool set, uh, to things that are reliable, that saves me a lot of time and effort. So, um, like I said, like I have a family, I, um, computers are not the only thing that's important to me in the world. So, um, I try to keep things as functional and reliable as possible. And so, if I need to go, if I need to, one of my biggest things for measuring new tool sets is how reliable is it? How big is the community? When was the last ticket closed? All of that stuff. So if I see anything in any of that looks a little sketchy, I won't use it. And I'll just continue to do my thing because um, I know it works and I've vetted it out, right, over time. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same way. Like I really do value community over a lot. Like that is a huge deciding factor in what to use. And also things like, yeah, I mean, it's got to help me in my day-to-day, right? It's like, if this is not saving me a ton of time, then I'm not going to bother learning it, right? Right, right, right. So what does your uh, deployment process look like? Like, you know, you have some code on your dev box right now. You want to push up a new build. Can you walk us through that workflow from uh, start to finish? Sure. So most of the time I'm, I'm by myself. So I'll run my testing and make sure everything passes. And then uh, depending on how sophisticated what I'm working on is, I might do my a pull request against myself, <laughs> which sounds weird, but it is a little bit of a stop check to make sure, like, uh, you know, are you about to really blow things up? Um, I typically always have two instances. So I'll have my local dev, I'll have a beta server that I test and run um, test against. And then once the uh, beta server is uh, even just passes an eyeball inspection, um, then I'll push it to production. Okay, so that beta server, is that running in like a local VM on your dev box or is that just a droplet? And it's a droplet. It's a full on, you know, I mean, this is sort of how I get by not having to use Docker is because I just, I set up one droplet, I duplicate the droplet and then one I call beta and one I call production. So, um, and then I set up my um, my init file for uh, Django settings to, to, to find the host name and depending on the host name will serve up specific uh, settings so that I know, I'm, you know, I've got the right thing running in the right place. Right. So you just have some bar at the top that says, Hey, by the way, you're on the uh, beta server or something like that. Yeah. There's different ways to do that. Django has some um, apps that you can do that with. I I'm, I'm not that sophisticated. I just, my process is always like local, um, local beta production. And if it fails at any point, it doesn't go further. 
Right. Okay. So as for where you push this code to, do you push this to like GitHub first and then directly onto the server? Or do you have like a CI server in between? No, I use um, GitLab. Um, I I still, I have a GitHub account. I just, I really like GitLab. Um, and so, and I, because <laughs> I'm a little bit ADD, so I, I uh, or not a lot, a, a little, a lot. So I'll be like start and stop projects constantly and I don't want to share them with the world. <laughs> so um, I like GitLab because I can have as many private repos as I want. Yeah, it definitely took GitHub a really long time before they allowed private repos for uh, for free. Yeah. What did that happen like a year ago? But meanwhile, GitLab had it for, I think, since the beginning, right? Yeah, they've had it for a long time. Yeah, I really do feel like GitLab is super, like, super optimized for the solo developer. Like, it's really good if you're just one person. Yeah, I, I have, I'm pretty, um, yeah, I'm most everything now is on GitLab. I do have some stuff that's still in GitHub. Um, and they are, that's a good assertion, they, they are bigger projects with lots of developers, so. So going back to your deploy process, then um, when you push code up to GitLab, are you pushing secrets here as well, or how do those get to your server? No, sir, secrets are, um, I manually FTP them in. Um, I leave them out of the repo and I leave them, um, they don't show up anywhere unless I've put them there. Okay, and just to be like 100% explicit here, do you actually end up get pushing code directly to your server then in addition to GitLab, like two separate Git pushes? No, pulls. So I'll do a push from my local machine to the repo, and then um, I'll do a pull from, uh, I'll do a pull on the server from the repo. The server never pushes, ever. I see. Okay. So like part of your deploy process then is like SSH into server, run a get pull or some shell script you wrote that does a couple of things? Yep. Okay. So part of those couple of things, like do you just run you know, install your pip dependencies, maybe run a, a Django DB migrate or whatever command you would run for that? Yeah, so I try to be really careful with the migrate stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, typically that's what it would be. Uh, usually, you know, I'll do the push, um, you know, close whatever issues or whatever I'm working on on this. On, uh, well, it depends on where I'm at with it. But uh, and then I'll do a pull into beta, test it on beta, and then do a pull into production. Um, and then it's done. Okay. So do you have any alarm set up on DigitalOcean to get notified if something like the server, the CPU maybe is like at 80% for five minutes? Do you get email? Any other alerts like that? Yeah. So I turn on all the monitoring for um, DigitalOcean. I'm, I'm a big fan of monitoring all the things. So uh, for a while I was using um, a bunch of uh, tools inline and it spent so long and they stopped working. So I stopped using them and or got bought by different companies. Um, so I've been using, um, oh, you listed it in your show notes from previous uh, things, but I can't remember. Is it Uptime Robot? Uh, it's Uptime Robot, yeah, yeah. I use Uptime Robot on everything, and then I have um, the DigitalOcean um, tracking going as well. And then the, the, the Django admin tools are really good too, so they're not you know failure incident notifications, but they do have um, um, good like you know server error tracking. So do you actually get notified by email if like an error 500 happens at the Django level? Yes, with the full st stack trace. It's pretty awesome. Nice. And that's just a feature you get with Django out of the box or are you using something like Sentry or a different service? No, it just comes right out of the box. Awesome. And then what about for like general logging and metrics at the Django level or even at your server level? Do you just parse them on the command line as needed or do you get them ferried over somewhere? 
So most of the stuff, uh, most of it is on the command line, just as I need them. Um, I do some site analytics stuff with uh, Google Analytics, and then I do some with uh, Cloudflare. Um, I had been using some uh, user like user tracking tools, um, but I don't know, man. I I feel like people are getting so creeped out about that stuff that um, and having to keep it included in your privacy policy and all that stuff. Like, I don't know. It just, it doesn't, I'm, 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 I'm questioning the value of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And also you got to think too, it's like, well, I don't know what your target target audience is, but it's probably not developers, but I feel like, you know, if you're developing a SaaS app or something for other developers to use, most of us are probably running something like uBlock origin or another ad blocker. It's like, those analytics are not even getting picked up. Yeah. You know, the one thing I've, um, I haven't found a great solution for yet, but that I've, I've tried building it, you know, on weekends, that kind of stuff, but basically a feedback tool and it's easy to get with Django. It's easy to get the, like all the, um, metadata out of the call. So like, uh, you know, the user agent and all that data. Um, but a, a way to go beyond and URL and who the user was, but most of my stuff, like I'll get a call from someone and be like, hey, this thing doesn't work. And I'll have to sort through, okay, what do you mean? So there's like analytics is going to tell me that, right? So I have to be able to continue to talk to my users. And um, you know, I, I appreciate the value of being able to track and see things happen before the user has a chance to discover the problem. But I have yet to work on a system that, that doesn't have errors. And it's and it's never the obvious error that you are, you planned for and tracked. It's something weird that no one could have thought about, and you still have to be able to talk to people about it. Yeah, for sure. Now, maybe going back to errors and like how you might track down things in the logs. You mentioned you kind of just do it on the command line, you know, as needed. Is that all managed through like journal CTL on your server? Like, are you using System D and unit files to manage your G unicorn or no? Most everything is through um, journal CTL. Okay. It's a pretty powerful tool. I mean, it kind of stinks having to like SSH into a server and run commands to get that info. But at the same time, the journal CTL command line, it's like super nice to be able to be like, well, show me all logs, you know, between May 21st to the 28th or whatever, you know, it's very yeah. good to filter. And honestly, like that's probably an indulgence I take where I start to feel like I'm in the matrix, like I'm doing something yeah. fun, you know? So I don't, I, it doesn't bother me that much to do it. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like you think you're in the matrix when you have to log into your server and look through logs. Whereas if I think that it's like, I'm kind of scared that I need to log into a production server. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, one trick I do is similar maybe to, you know, how you mentioned to get notified, like a little banner to see if you're on the beta server. What I really like to do in, in my production servers is, you know, I'll change the, like the PS1, like the bash prompt to be a, a red color for the host name or something like that. Just so I know it's like, Nick, you're on a production server. Be very careful. Um, there is a, I'm looking it up right now. There's a, there's a Django app that does that for you automatically, um, based on some settings. It's pretty rad. Nice. Yeah. I'll try to, uh, pop that one into the show notes, even though technically I guess you're not using it in this app. Not in this one. No. Oh, actually I wrote one for myself, but it's just using the Django template filters. So I can tell based on where I am and what settings are going on. It'll tell me you're on production or you're on development. Right. So maybe now let's talk a little bit about disaster recovery and unexpected events. Like you kind of talked through how, you know, you have DigitalOcean alarms with uptime robot going on, which is a, a very good combination. But what do you do for things like database backups? 
So I use all the Django, I'm sorry, all the DigitalOcean features for back, for backupping. Um, I don't launch a since even for testing, I don't launch something without backup. Um, and then I do uh, periodic, um, their image, I forget what the name of the, the actual thing is. Um, the snap, the snapshots. So I'll do like periodic date, like dated views of the snapshots, which basically is like the complete uh, droplet. And I can use that for um, um, going back to uh, when I need to as well. Right. Yeah, I guess that is one advantage of having everything onto one server. You can just take a snapshot of it. And it's like that is literally everything you know or everything you need to do from end to end to go uh, from nothing to up and running. Yeah. And I use that as I think about and plan for additional services. So uh, one of the questions I ask when I, before I break something out as a feature or as a microservice, I go, is does this make sense as a snapshot? Like if this, if you took this out, it would be missing. Yes. But would it break everything else? And so that's, I use that sort of as a principle for deciding on as a design decision, like how, how do I structure this so that it makes sense to be hot swappable if something fails. Right. So I have a question for you. So you mentioned that you are a DigitalOcean partner and you have all of these different droplets on your account. If you were having to pay for all of these droplets and features on your own, would you still use the automated backup, which I think is what on deal like 20% extra to get that feature? Uh, yes, because <laughs> uh, it only takes one time for you to not have it for you to be done. I don't even, I don't even evaluate whether or not that's a, that's to me, that's not an add on cost. Like I know the server costs what $40 a month and then, or to make it easy, $10 a month. And then the backup is an extra $2 a month. To me, it's $12 a month. Like there, there is no difference. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, at this point it's like, it's a seatbelt. Like you're just not going to wear it. You know, it's like, it needs to be there because it has to be. Yeah, things will go sideways. That not they might, not they could, they will, and you have to have a backup. Yeah. So speaking of that, have you ever had a situation where Uptime Robot just emailed you and they were like, Psst, "By the way, your site's down." Like, did that ever happen? Oh yeah. Um, and it especially happens when I've when I first started doing, um, and thankfully it was on a small scale. But when I first started using Vue and uh, figuring out how to do uh, search and I was like, Oh, autocomplete, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to use autocomplete for everything. And next thing you know, you've killed your digital ocean, um, instance because you put it into some crazy SQL join that can't, it's like, I have no idea how to, I don't have enough resources to do this. So I'm going down. And th that, uh, that was probably about four years ago. So I sort of learned my lesson there. Like, Autocomplete is cool, but if it's power, it needs to be powered by something substantial, right? Before you kind of deploy that kind of search functionality. Right. There's that one saying, right? With uh, great power comes great responsibility. Yes, <laughs> totally true. Totally true. In other words, like you must add, what is that one feature called? Is it called like a debounce feature? I think it is one of those. Yeah. So uh, debounce is great. I actually just have killed it. <laughs> so. Um, I use, I still love the functionality, the filtering functionality, which you can use on a reduced set, right? But for basics, just starting with search, it's a type out your query, then we'll go get it. Um, I don't, I don't even use debounce anymore. 
Right. And just for anyone out there who's not familiar with what debounce is, do you want to just give them like the TLDR? Sure. So uh, don't search until you've reached this number of characters. Right. Or maybe also it's like, yeah, it's like if you're typing very, very, very fast, you can wait like 500 milliseconds until they stop typing in order to do your search. Right. View, view used to do it, and it may, it may have changed, but View used to do it by uh, uh, character count. Oh, okay. Yeah, not too familiar with View, but good to know that they have things like that baked into the library. So we're kind of getting towards the end of the call here. Like, What would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are for building this app? Um, it's easy to spend a lot of time designing a perfect system um, that no one will ever use. And so... The thing that we did right uh, in the beginning was we got the stakeholders, the actual users of the application, they were actually one and the same, to use the application as fast as possible. And one of the things that's great about Django, and everyone says, and I 100% agree, Django admin is not your app. Totally agree with that. However, if you can start to show people how things, the relationships work, um, they can start to imagine it. One of the things that's really challenging for our users is they're not developers and they do not understand what we're talking about. So giving them tools to play with, to give you feedback off of as fast as possible, like within weeks of starting, if you can, is a, will save you a lot of time and earn you a lot of credibility later on. Yeah, that's very well put. And I'm, I'm, I'm a developer and, and I still feel the same way. It's like, I don't know, for me to really understand how something works, like being able to see it and play with it and tinker with it from all stages, like beginning to end, like helps me so much to kind of just understand what I'm working with. Like, yeah, to not have to handcraft a custom admin that's going to take like a month to keep in sync with like a big app or whatever. Super nice to have that just out of the box. Totally agree. Yep. So building this app, have you actually come across any maybe mistakes that you've made throughout the process that you sort of fixed over time? Yeah. Um, one of the mistakes I made was I overbuilt the front end. So uh, I built a really complex system and used uh, a, a, a framework called Semantic UI, um, which is a great framework by itself, but I didn't take the time to figure out how to optimize it and that caused problems later on. So I guess the suggestion would be, if you are going to use a framework, make sure you understand how to optimize the framework because the, um, when you start using it for development, it is not even close to what it needs to be when it's on production. Yeah, for sure. And I think that even probably carries over to backend stuff too as well, right? Yeah, I think you have some leniency with the backend stuff because, well, it depends on how complex your query sets are getting. But uh, I think if the site literally won't load because you have like some gargantuan CSS file, um, you're shot in the foot before you've even started. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Definitely. So Dave, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, thanks. That was great. If anybody has any questions, I'm always around. Sure. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Dave Merwin. And then our website is purebluedesign.com. Awesome. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.